Welcome back to Montana Voice. We're reading from The Ether and the Lie. Where we last left off, XX had beaten O'Neill to death with a juggling club, and Enzi has driven out of town to a small camp spot where he's waiting with a loaded 45 and a bag of potato chips. This episode is called Into the Ether. I thought I would have to wait and stay awake all day and maybe through the night. But after only about three hours, a jelly bean of a car, an airport rental, drove up on the Forest Service Road and stopped 50 feet away from me. I thought he would have snuck up, parked further away, and then walked. And I thought he would come in the dark. But XX just looked at me through the rental car's windshield, looked at me sitting there on the camp chair, wearing my fuzzy sweats, reading a book. As I was looking at him, I reached into the bag of potato chips, took one out, and ate it. And then I gave him a small wave and pointed at the shoulder bags under the chair. His car then started moving, and he pulled off the road and close to where I was sitting, and he stopped, and he rolled down his driver's side window. I saw him looking at me again and looking at the shoulder bags by my feet. I closed the book and I stood up, holding the book with my left hand loosely over the hoodie's pocket. And I said, just take these. And I gestured to the book bags. And then I said, and just, just go. I made sure that all the fear I felt was in the tone of my voice. Take them and go, I repeated. Please, leave me alone. XX did not give any indication that he was worried about me. Instead, he said, Not so easy, mate. And then, with his left hand, he lifted a flip phone, a burner, which was already open, and he held it to his head and said, Found him. And then he told me, Mutual friend wants a word. And XX held out the phone through the open window while leaving his right hand on the steering wheel of the running car. I was standing, and we were about six feet apart. XX had not given any indication that he was worried about me, a coder, someone he had thrown onto the floor. I took two steps towards him, still holding the book in my left hand. Then, when I was just close enough to have taken the phone that he was offering me, I reached into the hoodie, I grasped the 1911, I brought it out, and I leveled it as smoothly as catching and then returning a juggling club in its spinning, fluid cycle. As the gun was leveling, I was pulling the trigger, and the surprise of the gun's kick hit me at the same time as XX's realization that he had underestimated someone. His head 
jerked abruptly and he slumped sideways. He had not turned off the engine or taken it out of drive and the car started moving forward and drove itself through the level camp spot and stopped as it ran slowly into a small ponderosa. The engine automatically revved a few times and then stalled. It would have been a quiet moment, except for the roar that was still ringing in my ears. It would have also been a tranquil setting, except that there had been a horrific spray of blood which had splashed on the hoodie, the book that I was still holding, and my face. I heard a small voice coming from the flip phone at my feet. I looked down and I picked it up and I heard Tsai yelling, What was that? What was that? I closed the phone and wiped it with the hoodie. I looked up and down the road. I listened. Then I went over to the jelly bean car. I did not want to look at him, but I did look for an indelible moment. It was not a small hole. It was not one of Pascal's paper targets. It was a person, a dead person. He had beaten and killed O'Neill and had probably taken part in killing Dave Cheat, and he would probably have kept killing other people, Suzzy, maybe Rachel, and he would have kept doing anything Tsai had told him to do. He hadn't come to where I was to get himself a million dollars. He was on the phone with Tsai when I had shot him. He had come to make sure that I was aware that the pressure would never let up. But it still was not right that I had killed him. For me to think otherwise was part of the lie. A wrong that tries to make right out of greed gone wrong. I dropped the flip phone into the jelly bean, and then I walked back to where I had shot the gun. I found the spent shell casing on the ground, one pace to the right of where I had been standing. I picked it up and put it into the hoodie's pocket. I took down my tent. I packed it, the chair, the two day packs, the bag of potato chips, everything that had been part of my relaxed setup, and I put it all back into the Subaru. Still, no one had driven by. And the time of year, hunting season, a random gunshot would not arouse much suspicion. I put the gloves back on and then from the back of the car picked up the trash bag of cash. Even though it only weighed about 10 pounds, it was dense and heavy. The other 10 pounds of bundled money was loose in the back of the Subaru under the blanket. 20 pounds of cash, about the same weight as a human skeleton. I wondered if whoever had dug Tsai's grandfather's skeletons from their butte graves had thought those bones heavy. Two skeletons would have been 40 pounds of bone. How many feet of wire would 40 pounds of copper make? Enough to light up even one mansion on the richest hill? How many pounds of bone was needed to dig up a mountain of copper? How many skeletons had it cost to wire the country? 
The networks between New York and London were microwave signals and glass fiber wrapped in plastic. How many keystrokes did it take to create that ether? How many other bags of money had Psy planned on having to keep throwing at me? How many keystrokes for a life? The thick book that I had used to help hide the gun, the book that I had been holding when I pulled the trigger, had several splashes of wet blood, which I dabbed onto the side of the trash bag full of $10,000 bundles. Then I went to XX's car, the jelly bean, and placed the trash bag onto the floor of the back seat. I was leaving a half million dollar confused mess for thin. I got in the Subaru and left. Before getting back on the paved frontage road, I stopped, I turned off my phones, and I changed my clothes. I put the blood-spattered book and everything I had worn into a new trash bag, and then I headed back towards Missoula. I stayed on the frontage road, and a few miles west of Clinton, where the road dipped close to the Clark Fork River, I pulled over again. After removing its clip and ejecting the live round, I took the 1911 and I threw it into the middle of the river. It made a splash like a brick being dropped onto a wet sponge. Then I called Suzzy at her office number, knowing because it was Sunday that the call would go to voicemail. I left her a message saying what I had written earlier in my resignation letter, and added that I had gone and talked to the police and told them about the tattooed man who had stolen the juggling club. I said, I think he might have thought that Nate and I were drug dealers because of the juggling, I guess. Maybe saw us a few weeks ago juggling at the farmer's market. I think maybe he had been watching me since then and could have searched my house for drugs. Then maybe he went down to the office and saw Nate and me juggling. It's horrible, but I don't think it's work-related. I think they will catch him soon. I gave a good description. Anyway, I'm getting out of town for a while, but I don't think there's anything for you to worry about anymore. Then I hung up, and I turned off the phone again, and I continued to Missoula. I drove to the Sweet Rest Motel. The place was even more forlorn than it had been when I had taken Helen to the river behind it. The walls in the motel's office were decorated with all the standard signs of no. No smoking, no credit, no drugs. But they took cash and gave me a key. I went into the room and I took a shower. Then I went back to the Subaru got the trash bag that contained the clothes I had been wearing and the book I had been holding and walked behind the motel to the river's edge, which still had not started icing over. I tried to find the rock where Helen had stood, spun, and fallen, but the river and time had done what rivers and time do. They had both meandered and moved, and the bank was not the same as it had been and neither was the town. Missoula had once been beautiful. Now it looked like a place to run from. I reached into the trash bag 
and one at a time threw the items into the river, starting with the hoodie, then the shell casing, then the book, the jacket, the sneakers, the gloves, the sweatpants. The last thing I threw in was the empty plastic bag, which floated near the riverbank for a while before being swirled further out into the current. It was the first time I had littered, and I did not know what was bothering me more, the plastic I was sending downriver or the bullet that I had sent through XX's head. A man wearing an army field jacket that was stained with wood smoke and sweat into a homeless brown color walked up the riverbank to me and asked what I was doing. I told him, getting rid of my past. And then he stood next to me and we both watched my littering items float out of sight. He said, you're not the first Lots of regrets thrown in from this spot. I've seen them float by. He didn't say anything else. I asked if he needed any money, and he said, Nah, I'm good. And then he continued walking up the riverbank. It was two in the afternoon when I went back into the motel room, pulled the blinds down, and lay down on the bed. I don't remember falling asleep, but I was woken up by yelling from the next room. The arguing between two people who probably once had been in love, but now sounded like they were both looking at the walls of the sweet rest and blaming each other. The bedside clock read 8.16 p.m. I left the room dropping the key in the return slot by the check-in office, and drove to the river lot where I had met with Pascal before. He was there, sitting in the cab of his truck and reading a book under the truck's dome light. I parked and I got out of the Subaru. He saw me and waved and put on his cowboy hat and stepped out of the truck. What sort of trouble is it now? he asked. I told him, that there was no more trouble and that I was fine. Pascal said, Well, that's unlikely, but I'll believe a fella. Then he told me, Detective came down here and talked to me yesterday about a fella. And he said Finn's name. I found and reported those two bodies, thought he was here to ask more about that, but he asked what I know about a fella. What did you tell him? I asked. I told him what I know. I told him I know a fella, that the fella used my services. Didn't say much else. Might have told him that I suspect a fella was dumb and in love. And Pascal pointed his thumb and finger at me like a cocked revolver and said, Bang! I nodded and Pascal went on. I know this one. He's angry at everyone, always looking for cop show conspiracies instead of seeing just more Montana bullcrap. But he usually gives up fast after an arrest. I don't think the fellow will be bothered by him. Then I told Pascal that I felt responsible for Kaori having killed the two people, 
since Kaori killed them after we had bailed her out. Pascal said, A fella know what? I'm almost always feeling responsible. Happens every time someone I help bail goes and messes up, and most do. Most go and keep messing up. But she would have called someone else if she hadn't reached out to a fella, her family, or some other bondsman. And then Pascal tapped my chest, and he continued, The difference is a fellow was fallen for her. Always the ones who try in the best way, those ones get their lights punched out. And I'm not talking about that busted nose. Then I told Pascal that I was about to drive south. I said to him, maybe live in the car and tent through the winter. Find a place where no one will bother me. He didn't seem surprised. But he did say, Be watchful with that money a fellow showed me. Don't be flashing that around. I asked Pascal if he wanted some of it. And then I said, Actually, do you want all of it? He looked quietly at me. And then he took off his cowboy hat and scratched his head. And then he looked at me some more. Then he shrugged and said, Nah, I think a fella might need it more than I would, and I have a feeling that taking it from a fella would just become a whole stink load of disaster. And he added, No, I'm good. The same thing the homeless-looking man by the riverbank had said to me earlier in the day. Well then, I said, again someday right? And then Pascal said, for certain. And he put his hat back on and got back into the cab of his truck. And he turned on the dome light again. And he picked up the book that he had been reading. I got back in the Subaru and I started to drive away. But first, I decided to call Tsai one last time from Missoula. I turned on the burner and I called him. This time he answered and he asked, What have you been up to? I said to him, It it took a while, but everything you wanted is working again. I saw that, Sai said. It had probably been too soon for him to know that XX was dead, but I knew that he had been on the phone with Sai when I shot XX, so it would have been impossible for Sai not to be suspecting something. And from that call, Tsai certainly would know the location where I killed XX. I've been having trouble reaching a mutual friend of ours, Tsai said. Know anything about that? He asked. I I, I know he trashed my house. I, I know he killed my business partner. And I know that he... Helped kill Dave Chi. I know Fritter is a partner of yours. You want to know more about what I know? I said this fast, still with fear, but now with anger in my voice as well. Sai said, Those are dangerous words. Don't know what you're talking about. I I know you do, I said. I know you know. But you need to leave me alone now. I am done. I'm gone. NZ 
Sai started to say. But I hung up first, and I turned off the phone, and then I got out of the car, and I walked down to the river. I threw both my phones in, one after another. The splashing sounds they made in the dark were like two trout rising for stoneflies. Trout that sleep in the eddies behind round river boulders. Trout that wake up at dawn and hide all day by pretending to be shadows. When I walked back to the car, Pascal was standing there again. Wanted to give a fellow two somethings for his travel, he said. Just now finished this one. And he handed me the book that he had been reading by Primo Levy. A fellow might relate, and this one too. And he gave me a thick and tattered road guide to free and unregistered campsites throughout the West. Think a fellow might need this here for a while. Drive slow, think a lot. Stay put when the staying is good. I thanked Pascal and said goodbye. And then, in the rearview mirror, I watched him touch the rim of his hat as I drove away from the dim lights and toward the innumerable bright stars. Half a year later, at the end of spring, in the desert southwest, I was at a cafe in a small town near where I had been camping. I was having breakfast and reading the local weekly paper. I turned the page and saw a syndicated business article from the Wall Street Journal about an ongoing investigation into a massive insider trading scheme. The article was about recent prominent arrests of 17 highly ranked officers, including Fritter and Tsai, at nine different large public companies worldwide. The arrests were causing a shakeup within the entire stock market. The article said that the discovery and arrests had been possible because of a computer virus that appeared to have been created to track the insider trader's activity. It said that the tracking virus had been created by a network security engineer at SLAM who had died under mysterious circumstances in a car wreck six months earlier. There was a color photo of Dave's wrecked and burnt Tesla with the caption, Posthumous Whistleblower's Wreck on I-5 last November. Then, two weeks later at the same cafe, another paper and another article. This one made my hands shake. It was an article from the Associated Press with a black and white photo of Kaori standing in a Missoula courtroom. The caption under her photo read, Love Triangle, Double Murder, Artist, Sentenced to Life. The article luridly described the events 
that led Kaori from Japan to Missoula and detailed that her confession and the evidence had included several of her drawings. She was quoted as saying, My art was for my one love. Kaori had become what she had wanted to be. She was now famous. I do not know if Tsai or Fritter have talked about me, and I do not know if they realize that I was their downfall or if they think it came from Dave Cheat. But the lines on Thin's scrolls have probably been converging, even if his logic follows Zeno's forever path of getting closer while never arriving. My line traveled near Kaori's, connected with size, moved away from O'Neill's, and crossed XX's. But it had started earlier on scrolls that Thin will never draw. Thin is probably now working on learning where I have gone. But if anyone really wanted to, they could reach out and find me. I am in the ether, which connects with everything, everywhere, even back into the past. Now, I will hit send, and these words will be yours. You've just listened to a reading of the novel, The Ether and the Lie. If you enjoyed this story, when ink hits the paper, consider buying a copy of the book. The music for The Ether and the Lie was composed and performed by me, playing flute, harmonica, and keyboards. I had some great help from my friends. That Doboro and Sly guitar was written and performed by the one and only Eric Forrest Hutchins. And the didgeridoo, now how cool was that, was played by Mandela Van Eden of the Trail Less Traveled fame. Until next time, I hope that wherever you are, you are sharing stories. It's what makes us human. For Montana Voice, this has been Steve Saroff.